Please take out your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John, the fourth chapter. A couple of things that we, we sang about, uh, one of the songs, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul writes in Romans 8, 31, and he says, literally there, if God is for me, if God is with us, who can be against us? And, you know, a lot of times we think about what's going on in the world around us. I don't know how many of you got up this morning, you know, I got up and, and was doing my normal routine and, you know, got an alert on my phone uh, that said, you know, there had been a, uh, an attack uh, on a, a bar, a nightclub in Orlando, 20-plus people dead, 40-plus people injured. You know, I read that this morning, and they're investigating that as a, an act of uh, radical Islamic terror. You know, that's the initial report that the gentleman that uh, killed those people had uh, ties to terror. You know, and I, and I began to think about the message this morning and, and, and what we're going to look at, winning at what matters most, and specifically starting with the woman at the well, that uh, there were things that she did, some things that she put into place in her life that, that uh, literally she was chasing the world's model. And one of the things that you and I need to realize in this world today is you better have a plan. Okay, those young people that went to that, that nightclub last night, they, they had no clue that last night for many of them was going to be the last time that they took a breath on this physical earth. And, and what we find in the woman of the well, she was engaged in relationships and she was engaged in relationships in the way that the world taught. And, and the reality is for you and I today, what, what's wrong with, with the world is not the world, okay? The world is just being the world, okay? I mean, let's just be honest. The world doesn't know any better than to be the world. That's just doing what it's supposed to do. The problem is that so many of us today in the Word of God and in the church of God, the body of Christ uh, as a whole, not, not specifically this church, but as a whole, is that we don't have a biblical worldview. Okay, we, the Bible is a part of our life, and we believe wholeheartedly that the Bible is important for everything that we do, but the reality is we don't have a biblical worldview. And to have a biblical worldview means that the Bible, its truths and its principles, govern every decision that we make. It governs our view of economics. It ought to govern our view of politics. It ought to govern our view of relationships. It ought to govern the way we do business. It ought to govern the way we, we pursue education. It ought to govern, I mean, the Word of God says very plainly, very simply, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all for the glory of God. And so having a biblical worldview means that we know what it says about every particular situation in life, and we apply it. And the problem is today that we've allowed our enemy, the devil, who is real, okay? It's not some dude running around in a red suit with horns on his head and a pitchfork. The devil is real. He's been given limited authority over this realm for a while, and we've allowed him to convince us that the Bible is okay as a part of our life. And so the Bible becomes a part of our life, not the core of our life. And because everything doesn't emanate from that core of a biblical world model, what happens today is we compartmentalize our faith. Faith is what I do on Sunday morning. Or faith is what I do when I'm in my Bible study. But 
The reality is faith is supposed to be something that I do on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on Thursday. It's what I do when nobody is around. It's what I do when everybody is around. And the the other part of that deal is, is that by and large today as a people, we are illiterate when it comes to the word of God. We listen and we read and we hear. Man, we have more biblical literature and Christian written books and studies than ever before in history. More videos and more DVDs and more online stuff than ever before in history. I mean, you can pick up your phone and have more Bible knowledge right there at your fingertips than than most pastors have in their studies in hardbound books, okay? But we don't know the word. We know what somebody else says about the word, but we don't know the word. And so this morning, we're going to look, and we're going to start for the next couple of weeks looking at a series, Winning at What Matters Most. And this morning, don't chase the wrong relationships. This book, the Bible, authored, written by over 40 different men over a period of 1,500 years, telling the same story consistently from Genesis to Revelation about God's interaction with mankind. I, I, I said this in the early service, and, and I don't even remember. I, I said the name of a game, and I don't remember if that was the name of the game or not. I don't think it was because when I said it, some people said, that ain't, that ain't the game. <laughs> I don't know what it was called, but it was a game you used to play in elementary school. You know, and, and your teacher would set you in a circle, and she would whisper something in this person's ear and would tell you to pass it. What was it? Telephone, well, I got it right, okay? I, I, I pat myself on the back. I said that. Somebody's like, that's not what that's called. Anyway, but you would pass it around the circle and see if what got to the end is what you started with, remember? And, and you could have 20 kids with great hearing, you know? I mean, I can understand if they pick 20 of us. <laughs> you take these things out of my ears and try to tell me a secret, and I ain't going to hear it, Okay. But I can understand it, but you take 20 kids with perfect hearing and you, you know, it wasn't even close. Now think about that. 40 men over a period of 1,500 years writing one consistent story. God's interaction with mankind. The Bible is true. And and it gives us the foundation for everything that we do And this morning, we're going to look at what that means for us in our relationships. If you have your Bibles open there, John chapter 4. If you would, please stand with me this morning as we honor the reading of the Word of God. Beginning verse 1, when Jesus knew the Pharisees heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, uh, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about six in the evening. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. 
Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. You may be seated, and may God bless his word this morning as we study it together. We're going to look all the way through this chapter at the things that Jesus taught and, and, and how you and I take some principles of truth and apply them to the relationships, whether those are, are friendships, whether those are business partnerships, uh, our marriage relationships, uh, the way we interact with the people at the grocery store, the way we, we interact with people that wait on our tables, our waitresses and waiters, the way we interact with people, period, is to be governed by the truth. The way we interact with people in the church, the way we interact with people in our Sunday school, and most importantly, the way we interact with our neighbors is essential that we grasp that, that there is a right way and a wrong way to do relationships. Now, here's this woman, the woman at the well, and we begin reading her story. Look at verse 16. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, yet you Jews say the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Now I want you to understand who this woman is. She is a woman who is searching for truth. She wants to be successful. And as a young girl growing up in a Middle Eastern society, her whole life has been governed by the fact, the understanding that what she was going to do one day is she was going to grow up and she was going to be married to somebody and that person would take care of her. That, she has every girl's fairy tale dream. Her knight in shining armor is gonna ride in. He's gonna pay the bride's price for her. Her father's gonna say, man, you're worth this much to me, and the man is going to ride in, sweep her off her feet, pay the bride's price, and take her off to his castle, and she's going to live happily ever after the fairy tale dream. That's what the world said, only that's not what happened. But she's tried relationships the world's way. And what those relationships have left her is empty. In fact, she's tried it. Jesus says to her, Go call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right. In fact, you've had five. And so because she had five husbands, she had five divorces. And notice, Jesus does not condemn her for divorce. You know, we have made divorce today the unpardonable sin. But notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say a word about that. And he deals with her. And in fact, what he tells her is, in fact, you're living with a guy now. You've tried it even more the world's way. Maybe if we don't make a commitment. Maybe if we just live together. If we just share things. Maybe that will be okay. And what she's found out is making a deal the world's way will leave you empty. She's even tried religion. You Jews say that we're to worship in Jerusalem. Our forefathers say worship here. She's tried everything the world's way. And what she has found is nothing seems to be working in her life. She knows there's something more, and she's searching. 
Ever been there? Trying to find fulfillment in all the stuff of the world, trying to do it the way the world says, trying to, to take your life, even as a believer sometimes, and say, it's okay for me to do this because the end justifies the means, and, 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 and the means means I can do more for Christ. So it's okay if I bend the rules a little bit here or, or I, I shape a little bit there. It's okay for me. No. See, the reality is there is a right way to do relationships. There is, there is a right way to, to interact and, and to be the person that, that we know God called us to be. And, and the reality is we are trying. All of us, every single one of us are still trying it, whatever it is. Bigger cars, more money, bigger houses, more stuff, more hours at work, more success in the eyes of the world. We're still, we're still trying it. And the reality is it is going to leave you empty. I was reading this past week and my, my daily quiet time, we were in the Old Testament. I'm in the Old Testament. I was reading 1 Kings and reading through the story of Ahab and, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, and, and, and all of that going on. And Ahab, man, Ahab was not a godly king. Okay, he, he didn't do it God's way at all, at all. I mean, you remember his wife was Jezebel, okay? That just gives you a hint of what he did and how he did it, okay? But there's a story in 1 Kings 20 of, of God actually interacting in Ahab's life and saying, look, man, I, I want you to do this. I want you to come back. And he has this interaction with Ben-Hadad, who is the king of Aram. And, and, and Ben-Hadad comes to him. He has 32 other kings who are following him. And he begins to besiege the, the, uh, the, the city of Samaria. He's, he's coming against it. And Ahab is told this. Uh, uh, Ben-Hadad sends his messengers and he says this. He says, if you don't give me all your gold and silver and your best wives, I think that's neat the way the Bible says that, yeah. your best wives and your best children. I mean, you can keep the ones. Now think about as a wife if you got left, okay? Give me your best wives and your best children if you don't give me all of that, I'm going to come against you with my 32 kings and chariots against your city. So Ahab thinks, hmm, not a bad deal. So he gives his best wives and his best children and all his gold and silver and sends it back with the messengers to Ben-Hadad. The next day, verse 6 of chapter 20, Ben-Hadad sends his messengers back, and this is what he says. If you don't surrender to me everything that you have, my messengers are going to come and whatever you value as precious, they're going to take. You see, the world, if you make a deal with the world or make a deal with the world's principles, even as a believer, even as a child of God, that happens to us sometimes, but if we make a deal with the world, the world will take away everything we consider precious and it will leave you empty you and I have been called not to compromise our relationships we are not going to get ahead when we compromise on the area of our relationships Johnny Cash 
Some of you know who Johnny Cash is. He passed away in 2003. He was a successful songwriter, uh, a successful actor, a successful singer and musician, uh, wrote so many number one records and had lots of success in the eyes of the world. And just before his death in 2003, Johnny Cash, when being asked about the success of his career, said this, the only thing that success gives you is the opportunity to worry about everything else in life but money. The only thing that success in this life gives you is the opportunity to worry about everything else in life but money. See, there are a lot of us. We think, well, man, if I just had a little bit more paycheck at the end of the month, if I just had a little more money, I could sit back and relax and take it easy. I could not be stressed or pressured. If I just had a little bit more, no. Johnny Cass says, no. All more money does is it gives you an opportunity to worry about everything else in life. Don't pursue relationships the wrong way. Now, the second thing is we have to pursue relationships the right way. We have to learn what is right to start with what matters. Look at verse 26. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. I am he, Jesus told her, the one speaking to you. Now, this woman knows that there's more. I mean, she knows the places of worship. She studied the, the, the Jewish law. Remember who the Samaritans are. See, the Samaritans were Jews. They were Jews who compromised themselves early on in life, and they intermarried with people who were not Jewish and, and let their pagan influences influence their spiritual walk. So these are people, she comes from an ancestry of compromise. In fact, this is all she's ever known is compromise. How important is it parents, grandparents, future parents, that we understand the legacy that we are leaving? That we understand the people who are coming along behind us, the, the people that, that matter. And, and she knows there's something more, and, and she expresses that. She knows there's a hole, and she says, look, I know Messiah's coming. And I know when he comes, he's going to set everything right. He's going to tell us what really matters. He's going to put it into perspective. There's something more. She knew the teachings of Jeremiah. She knew the teachings of Ezekiel. She had the right idea of who Messiah was going to be. He wasn't going to be just this political leader. She knew that he was going to be the combination of an earthly king and a, and a priestly king. Those two things joined together in the way that God intended. She knew that. And notice what Jesus says. I'm he. Think about that for a minute. Did Jesus ever tell the Pharisees straight up, I'm the Messiah? No, he didn't. These people who had the greatest religious knowledge in the world at this day and time, who were looking for Messiah, he never said, <laughs> to her, 
A Samaritan, a woman who compromised her life, a woman who has found herself empty, a woman who's been married five times, a woman who's living with a guy, what's he say? Hey, look, woo, I'm here. Why? Because she was looking for the right answer. She knew the truth was coming. And because she was looking for the right answer, he said very plainly, I'm here. And, and, and he reveals to her this truth about what's going on. He is the one that's going to matter. Have you gotten there yet? Have you gotten to the point where you realize it's not the pursuit of religion it's not the pursuit of religious acts or service or doing things. It's not, it's not doing all of that stuff. It is understanding the knowledge that very simply it is the surrender of my heart completely and totally to the truth that he is the Messiah. He is the one. That word Messiah means the one anointed for the purpose of putting it all in perspective. That's who he is. That's why he came. And, and the reality is this. We have to recognize that to start the plan. Aristotle is the first one who was credited with saying, well begun is half done. In other words, if you start right, you're halfway home. If you start right, you're halfway to what you need to be doing. Well begun is half done. Do you have a plan? You see, if I understand this story written over 1,500 years, is God interacting with man, trying to repair the world's way from the garden and restore that so I can live with him in eternity. If where I'm supposed to be is with him in eternity and what I'm supposed to look like is with him in eternity, then shouldn't I get up today with a plan? If that's what I'm supposed to look like, what's it going to take right now, today, the next step for me to get there? When I begin with the end in mind, when I, when I start, if, how do I know I have a successful marriage? What does this book say about marriage? What's it say a good marriage looks like? And I start with that and, okay, now what's it going to take Sean, as a husband, what does the Bible say? Love as Christ loved. So if I'm going to have a good marriage, it means that I love my wife as Christ loved. How did Christ love? Christ sacrificed himself to perfect his bride without staying. Okay, that's the end. What do I need to do today to get there? How do I know I'm successful? What's it say? If I start with the end in mind and I start with the correct end in mind and I start correctly, I can get where I'm supposed to be. But I have to start with that in mind. It's God who wrote, inspired Solomon to write Ecclesiastes 3.11. It is God who put eternity in the hearts of men. Do you realize today that every single major religion in the world has some concept of life after death? Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, all of them. Why? 
Because God put eternity in our hearts. It wouldn't make sense if it didn't have some type of eternal life. And so Satan has even incorporated some truth into his lies. So it makes it easier for us to buy into his lie. God created this. God started this. And because God created this and God started this, how I begin matters. And if how I begin matters, it means that my neighbor matters. It means that the person who scans my groceries at the grocery store matters. And and do you realize, guys, can I, I just be honest? Satan doesn't want us interacting with anybody. If you're here today and you have a relationship to Jesus Christ, there has been a time in your life where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you trusted Christ as your Lord and your Savior, great. Satan knows he can't touch you, but what he wants to do is to keep you from interacting with anyone else. He's even created individual scanners at the grocery stores. You can go to the grocery store today and never smile, interact, talk, look at anybody and scan your own groceries when you leave. Dumbest thing I ever heard. Part of what I'm buying is paying somebody to scan them. If I'm going to scan them, they ought to give me a a, a credit. I just realized that. I'm not going through an automatic scanner again. I'm paying somebody to scan. You'd shop online, have it delivered to your door, not open your door till the guy leaves. You don't have to interact with people. Why? Because Satan knows when we're alone, we're weak. He knows when we're alone, we're not telling anybody. We have been called to deliver a message of truth to people's lives, and that truth is everyone matters. And so when I figure out what matters, the last part of this is that I use what I learn to make a difference. Look at verse 28. Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the men, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they left the town and made their way to him. And then over to verse 39. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. When she gets it right, what's the first thing that she does? She drops her purpose, what she thought was her purpose, scratching what itched. She needed water. Getting through the day. I just got to get through today, man. If I just get through today, tonight will come. If I just get through tonight, tomorrow will come. If I just get to the end of the month with enough paycheck to make it, man, living paycheck to paycheck, day to day, moment to moment, that's what she's doing. She forgets her purpose. She came for water. She leaves her water jar, and she immediately goes back to the town that made fun of her, the town that talked bad about her, the town that ridiculed her, the town that put her alone, literally. She can't even come to the well at the normal time, the cool of the day when other women come. She has to come by herself. But she found what mattered. But what did she do? She went right back to those people and said, hey, come meet a man that told me about everything I ever did. You notice what she found out? Her past didn't matter. Her past didn't make one bit of difference to Jesus. 
He knew all that. He knew five divorces. He knew she wasn't living the way she was supposed to. He didn't care. He came to forgive her past. He came to die on the cross to take care of her past. But he also came not just to take care of her past. He came to redeem her future and her present. And he said to her, you matter. And she found out because she mattered, everybody else mattered too. And so she goes and she begins to tell this truth. She begins to use the difference. And the Bible says that, that many Samaritans came and they believed in Jesus just because of what she said, because of her testimony. And then you read on down and it says, now we believe because it's come true for us. We don't even have to have your testimony. It's true for us. She used what she learned to make a difference. When she got it right, Samaritans, People who have a legacy of compromise got it right. Guys, we live in a community of people who have a legacy of compromise. They can't make right decisions. It's not the model they've ever seen. We don't live in the belt buckle of the Bible belt anymore. That doesn't exist. We live around people who need to know that God has redeemed their past. And he's redeemed their past so much that he's concerned about their present and more concerned about their future. He, he's concerned about where they end up because they matter. I don't care where you are today. God's not concerned about your past. It's done. He wants to redeem your current your present, and your future to give you a hope. Andy Andrews is an author, best-selling New York Times author, written, I don't remember how many, it's over 30 New York best time, number one all-time sellers. Most of them are small books. Some of you may have read them. They're just little books of, of just truth. One of them's called uh, one book. He's written Traveler's Gift. Some of you may have read, read, read that. Another one's called Socks for Christmas. Uh, another one is Baseball Boys and Bad Words. Practical, worldly advice. Um, successful author and writer. And he attributes all of his success to a guy named Robert Smith, who is his manager, and who uses some very simple principles to manage Andy's career. But not only Andy's career, he also manages a lot of important people in Wall Street and in the banking industry and in politics and other manager people who the world would look at and say they are successful. Robert Smith is their manager, and he is kind of a, a guru of simplicity and management style and hints and techniques to be successful. In 2012, Robert Smith was called one of the most influential men in American history because of the people that he interacts with and the impact he has on them. And in 2012, he wrote a book that became a New York uh, all number one best, you know, uh, number one best time seller. And in that book, he shares his hints for being successful in whatever your line of work is. Two of those hints 
are this. First of all, in every decision you make, you only have two choices. Yes or no. All that other stuff is just fluff. You have a choice. Every decision that you have to make, two choices. That's it. Yes or no. The second principle is this. Your life is going to take place whether or not you have a plan. It's going to happen. Taking those two principles, yes or no, and life's going to happen whether you have a plan or not, don't you think if we apply those two things to eternity that it gets really pretty simple? You have a choice about eternity. Yes or no? And because your life and your subsequent death are going to take place whether you have a plan or not, don't you think it might be good to have a plan that deals with both? God has a plan for your life. He does. And so what we have to decide is yes or no. Those, those 20 young people who died last night, man, the bridge is out. If you remember my story from last week. Clock's winding down in the fourth quarter. The shot clock's at two. Bases are loaded, the bottom of the ninth, there's two out and two strikes. I don't care what analogy you use. What you need to realize is time's winding down. It's close. And you better have a plan. God's got a plan. He's got a plan for you right where you are. So do you have a plan for winning at what really matters? This woman... She didn't have a plan. Her plan was get through the day. But in the process of executing no plan, she found God's plan. And she found what really mattered. And she used what mattered to make a difference. Do you have a plan? Right now, right where you are, have you recognized the truth that Jesus Christ died to redeem your past? That's it. It's not religion. It's not a denomination. It's not joining a church. For by grace are we saved through faith. And this faith is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Do you have a plan? Has there been a time in your life where you asked Jesus Christ to be Lord? Period. Forgive you. Grace, marvelous, matchless, wonderful grace. And are you executing the plan? Some of us here this morning, the honest truth is today's the day we need to confess. Lord, I need you to be Lord. I need to quit doing it my way and let you be Lord. Today, there's some of us, man, we're believers. We got on the path. We're working, man, but, but the reality is we need to let Christ bring to completion the plan. 
you know, we, we know we're saved, we know where we're headed, but man, maybe we, uh, we just, it's okay. It's all right. No, it's not. And maybe we just need to come and fall on our face and say, God, man, I, I need you to restore my plan. I need you to, to, to forgive me. I confess, Lord, I've, I've not worked a plan. I've not let other people matter. And, and maybe right now God's put somebody on your heart that matters. And maybe in a minute what you need to do is just come and, and just get on your face and say, God, I want them to matter because they do. How are we doing at winning at what really matters? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you that I can call you Father in everything that that means. I thank you that your grace is sufficient and your power is made perfect in weakness. I thank you that you are love and you are grace and you are forgiveness. And, and Father, you are repentance and you are discipline. And you are a restoring Father. I thank you that Christ is Lord and, and even when I, I rebel and, and reject, he's still Lord. And he is Savior and forgiver and redeemer. I thank you that the Holy Spirit is counselor and guide. And God, when I don't listen and I end up in a mess, that he is comforter, healer, restorer. So God, I pray for this, this body this morning that you would take us right where we are. Lord, there are some here this morning who need to surrender their life to Jesus. There are those here this morning, Father, as believers, we need to get back on the plan that comes through confession and repentance. God, there are those here this morning that need to be a part of the body. This is where you're leading them. God, I just pray that you would be Lord. You are. Help us to acknowledge that. Father, speak to hearts that Jesus Christ would be exalted and you would be glorified. And we pray that this morning in Jesus Christ's most precious name. Amen.